Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to this edition of V Radio. A long time coming. I am finally back on the air. <clears throat> I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a background on why it is it's been so long since I have been back. Um, some of it is financial, some of it is just situations going on in my life. Uh, one of the things that I remember discussing with Peter not long ago uh, was the fact that in order to be able to give you the kind of quality that you have come to expect from me, particularly when it comes to maintaining my patience when I'm debating people or um, being able to give you clarity and passion, I have to be in the right mindset. And if you're not in that mindset, then it's better for me not to be on the air and ruining you know, what it is that you guys have come to expect from V Radio than it would be for me to just keep doing it even, you know, regardless and offering a product that is inferior. So uh, that being said, I'm going to do my best to go back to once again doing weekly radio shows. Uh, today, I will be talking with Mike Shanklin. Uh, you might remember him from some of my previous uh, roundtable discussions on Storm Clouds Gathering's YouTube channel. Uh, Michael is an anarcho-capitalist, and today uh, I'm hoping to be able to settle some misconceptions that some anarcho-capitalists have about the proposals <coughs> of the Venus Project, the work of Jacques Fresco, and you know, elaborated on by Peter Joseph. Um, it is also important for me to point out that my goal today is not necessarily to convince people or sway people or convert people or any of that other stuff. Um, one of the things that I have also recently stumbled across in my studies is the fact that the reality of the matter is this. The more emotionally connected someone is to their point of view, particularly if it's something like their political beliefs, their religious beliefs, their uh, you know, cultural beliefs, et cetera, et cetera, the less likely that you arguing with them is ever going to convince them of anything. Uh, when I made the radical change from a free market libertarian to becoming a Zeitgeist member, uh, it wasn't because there were people that were fighting with me or pushing me around or anything. It was because I researched the situation, researched the information, went and met the people in question when I went and talked to Jacques Fresco himself rather than him just being this personality on the internet. When I interacted with Peter Joseph himself, I had conversations with, you know, Jacques, Roxanne, you know, the people who were actually at the core of this matter and did not allow myself to just simply be someone who was subject to the noise of the internet. That is what brought me to that decision and that conclusion on my own. If you want to share information with people, then the best way to do it is to present it to them in a way that is not offensive to them. Uh, there was an article, actually, I linked around recently that, you know, ironically, that if you want to win a political debate, use a weaker argument. And the point behind that is that people have a tendency to become not just emotionally invested in a sentimental sense, but they think that losing in debate is a severe blow to their self-esteem or their self-image. So you really can't get into that with people and expect that to win anyone over. Uh, it, I mean... It will work on weak-minded people, for example, who allow themselves to be bullied into submission or shouted down or whatever, but for the most part, it's all counterproductive, and it doesn't really flow with what I want to do in B-Radio. And I can't say, you know, I'm imperfect, I'm a human being just like everyone else, that there will not be times that I deviate from my own principles on this matter. But if you look at the photo, or rather the, the image that I use on my Facebook, 
which I'm actually thinking about changing, you know, also to the image for my radio show. You see the, the images of the people, the blue people on one side and the red people on the other, and they're both violently fighting and shouting at one another. And one of them is fighting, arguing and saying, one plus one equals one, and the other one is arguing, one plus one equals three. Um, you know, and then finally, the only guy who actually knows what's going on is the one who knows that it actually equals two, and he's got his head down, and people from both sides are both shouting at him to keep him silent. And that's the kind of thing that I try to avoid in B-Radio. I, I don't want that kind of logic to be the way things are done. If I am correct, then I should be able to demonstrate that absent uh, manipulating people, shaming people, you know, using logical fallacy, and I also respect that my quote-unquote freedom of speech is something that shouldn't be abused, and it shouldn't be used as a weapon to try to cower other people into silence. If I am clear in my thought, then I should be able to do that by presenting evidence, and if people are open-minded and actually intellectual, then they should be open to hearing it. So, Inevitably, I will struggle back and forth, just as everyone else does, you know, in trying to reach this. Um, there are no utopias, as Jack Fresco points out. You know, you just you're trying to make the rational approach is the best thing that you can do. So that's what I'm doing here. So that being said, I want to welcome Michael Shanklin to B Radio. Welcome, Michael. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me on your show. I truly appreciate it. No problem. Um, so. Let me, uh, first of all, as is tradition on V-Radio, ask you to give a, a brief background on why you were an activist. What was that precipice moment in your life, or maybe you were just raised in a way that, you know, kind of made it inevitable? But, that, you know, tell that brief story for the audience so that they kind of have an idea of where you're coming from. Yeah, sure thing. Well, first of all, I, I want to thank you for having me on the show. I truly appreciate any attempt at civil discussion, and I understrive that both of us are striving for a better world. So I want to thank you a second time just for that. So, yeah, everyone, my name is Mike Shanklin. Let me tell you a little, bit, a little bit about my journey. I originally started off in a family that wasn't really political. Now, my dad, uh, after a while, he, he started to get upset, I think, with uh, what the, the state was doing with a lot of the money. And obviously, we don't have a choice with the state. It's involuntary. And so he uh, he didn't want to pay them money so that they could go have wars and all the rest of this stuff. And so he refused to pay taxes, and he went into a cage for a few years. Now, at the time, I was – when it very first happened, I was kind of on the edge you know, about what to think about it. I didn't really have uh, any kind of a political ideology. And um, – as I saw how the system treated him, it just really, it really shone, shined on me about, you know, what is freedom at its base, and the whole America thing's a joke, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really just a bunch of oligarchs and tyrants up here uh, telling other people what to do and, and controlling their lives and, and arresting them for things that might even be considered peaceful. They infringe on nobody else. There's no victim. There's no crime. Well, they still go into a cage, and I disagree with that. So that was really, I think, you know, kind of a younger at least intellectual change in my mind. I came over to I saw I started looking at the, the two political parties and I realized, you know, <laughs> at first I was kind of a democrat and I really didn't know too much about anything. I didn't vote even. And then I kind of got a little bit more into some of the economic side. This is years ago. And so I, I wasn't pro republican as far as like war and banning gay marriage or any of that stuff, but I I had sympathy for people who just wanted to, you know, keep their own their own labor and sweat and toil and, and money. 
and not have it stolen, at least, if you know, if they want to give it to the system, I guess that's fine, but to the fact that you're th threatened to be thrown in the cage really started to irk at me, and um, I started looking around, and I, you know, even with that in the back of my mind, I always thought, oh, we need some kind of a state there, we have to have something for order and law and all the rest of the stuff, and as time went on, I just had more discussions with more people, uh, you know, I guess what you could say in my belief structure now, which is voluntarist, anarcho-capitalist, whatever you want to call it, uh, really, it's just a proprietarian-based ideal where we try to empower as many individuals as possible. And after I started to understand at least that side of, of their argument, I, I think I started to really dive more into their into their researching their arguments, which I think has helped me kind of build up to where I am today. As what I would consider over the last four years or so, a pretty strong anarcho-capitalist. Uh, now, not capitalism in the mindset that most people think about it, right? So. When when people say we live in capitalism today, I really don't support the system today, and I also don't want to make the same mistake of uh, com comparing zeitgeist to the modern state either. So I don't I don't want to make those mistakes, and I hope nobody else takes makes the mistake of thinking that when I say anarcho-capitalism, I mean anything that has to do with the system today. So it's kind of hard when we're talking about these two abstract ideas, and I'm glad we got together to have this discussion. If you guys want more of my stuff, head over to voluntaryvirtues.com or peacefreedomprosperity.com. We have more of a collective uh, adding there and, and contributions over on that site. So voluntaryvirtues.com is my site. But yeah, that pretty pretty much summarizes my journey Uh up to my 32 years of life so far. <laughs> okay, well, I want to remind the audience that essentially we've agreed to do two segments um, about this, and the first segment, I basically kind of put up a poll on my Fans of V Radio Facebook page, which you can find if you go to my website, v-radio.org, it's like v-radio.org, um, and if you go to the uh, link section, the Facebook page is there, I also added Michael recently so that he can share his information there. Um, as needed. Um, some people would ask me why I'd be willing to do that, and as I said to Michael off the air, I think that alternative media needs to stick together. Just like I said to Stefan when I had him on, I would much rather people were listening, if they were right-leaning or conservative-leaning, were listening to Stefan Molyneux or Michael Shanklin you know, than, say, Bill O'Reilly or you know, <laughs> other morons that the media will offer you. So that being said, um, in this segment, uh, because of the, the polls, results were that more people wanted to hear Michael get a chance to ask me questions about the resource-based economy model and put it to the test of you know some basic questions. Um, that is what we will be doing in this session. And the next section um, that I will be scheduling with Michael uh, at his earliest convenience, I will be asking questions about the anarcho-capitalist philosophy. So I'm dividing these two conversations up, and I think part of the reason why is because another thing that motivated me to get back out here and do this is I'm just going to be mildly blunt, and I hope not to offend any of my friends um, or, you know, even push aside any enemies, quote-unquote enemies. Um, the last few conversations that I have watched wherein anarcho-capitalists and members of the Zeitgeist Movement or even non-Zeitgeist Movement members like Storm Clouds Gathering, the quote-unquote debates have been a train wreck a train wreck. Like, there's, they're spitting at each other's ideologies here and there, a little bit there, a little bit here, and there was no structure to the conversation. And as a result, it was really hard for me to sift through and really learn anything um, other than the fact that these people are very passionate about their beliefs, and in many cases, they're also very passionate in their dislike for one another's beliefs. And there was no information being shared. And that's that you know comes back to the speech that I gave earlier about my beliefs about the um, 
essentially the clarity that must be achieved. If Michael Shanklin and I learn from each other tonight, then I have succeeded. It doesn't matter if he agrees with me. So, and as I pointed out to him also off the air, I will answer his questions, and I want to be absolutely sure that I answer them and that I do not in any way lose them. And I told him to continue to ask me. So if he sounds in any way aggressive, don't take that as offensive. Um, and we're going to do our best to stay very, very steady about this because our interest is, once again, in the clarity of the information. Now, that being said, I cannot guarantee that Michael will agree with everything that I say. And that's fine. He doesn't have to agree. <laughs> like I said to people on Facebook earlier, my goal is just to get people to clearly understand what it is that the resource-based economy model proposed by Jacques Fresco entails to the best of my ability. If people clearly understand it and still don't agree with it, that's fine. The only thing that frustrates me is when people who don't really understand it, and I imagine that you would say that, Michael, it probably frustrates you when people talk about anarcho-capitalism, clearly they don't know what they're talking about either. You know, at that point, people can't think clearly about it, okay? If you, if you hear me out and you don't agree, that's fine. What I don't want to see is a bunch of people with some very bad ideas about what it is that we propose going around and sharing those bad ideas. Um, I have friends, for example, who are socialists who get very frustrated with the fact that there's a lot of propaganda about socialism out there. Um, and so I will find myself sometimes correcting people about it. Even though I'm not a socialist myself, I do have some things in common with them, and I'm going to deny that. But it's more important to me that people understand what, what, at least what I understand, socialists actually represent. And I do the same thing if I hear somebody mistake anarcho-capitalism, anarcho-primitivism, anarcho-syndicalism, because, once again, if we're going to really have freedom of information, then it needs to be accurate. So, anyway, rant over. So, Michael, I wanted to give you an opportunity to go ahead and ask me some of these questions, keeping in mind the fact that my goal is to give you the answer as I understand it and, and uh, share with you my beliefs, and that by no means are you required to agree with me. Yeah, sounds good. So I think the best way to start off any of these types of discussions is to define, you know, we have to come to some definition basis. And so one of my first questions is, can you please just define a resource-based economy for everybody? <laughs> okay, well, um, first of all, I think it's really important um, and when you're discussing a resource-based economy to represent and, uh, and help people understand that you're talking about something that will come in stages. And the reason this is important, for example, is an initial resource-based economy, as I understand it and envision it, would look a little bit closer to, say, left libertarian, uh, anarcho-syndicalist concepts, um, bottom-up management, and things along that lines with the goal of creating an infrastructure that utilizes renewable resources, renewable energy, and creates a, um, a sustainable environment. Okay, A fully realized resource-based economy, which is in many cases what you're going to find on, like, say, the Venus Project website is what they tend to talk about, is, is not even point A and B. It's like point C or point D if you get the paraphrase. <laughs> Um, is way down the line. And um, so that's why I would take it first by saying the, the basic premise that I think makes it distinguished from other systems that I have seen 
is that the methodology of achieving answers to problems that mankind finds in their path is to utilize the scientific method, rational, critical, analytical thinking to arrive at decisions for how best to proceed to create solutions to those problems. If you need to build a bridge, you don't elect a politician who might be an obstetrician for all you know, who will then hopefully hire somebody who hopefully is not motivated by some corrupt you know, monetary system in that instance to then build a bridge which may fail because of course the guy's gonna make more money if he has to come back and fix the bridge, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all like typical status solutions that either of us agree with. Instead, committees come together of people who understand the archeology span of building bridges. They experiment, they discuss rationally what would be the best way to approach this bridge issue. Do we even need a bridge? And when we do build the bridge, what materials should it be made out of? How can we make it last as long as possible? How can we make it cost as little as possible in resources and manpower, okay? That same kind of scientific method is applied to everything, social concerns, okay? The scientific method applied to social concern is essentially how Jacques would say it in one sentence. Um, but it is because you're talking about any kind of, anytime you get into a situation where you're talking about any system that you're thinking that an entire society should function on, it's a big question to answer. So I hope that that basis for just the, the the baseline of it is sufficient. Do you have more questions about that? Well, I guess this is kind of like a part B to that. Um, and I hope you understand, it's kind of confusing the term resource-based economy because to somebody like me, I guess everything is, to me, a, a resource of another kind. The term resource itself uh, in some cases could be even subjective. So, you know, this is why I, we have to kind of you know, solidify these definitions. But to me, what's the real difference between, uh, like, why why is it called a resource-based economy when, do you, do you believe that everything is a resource? Would you define a resource? Well, you know, anything that is uh, basically when you give a name to something, there's going to be problems with helping people understand where you're coming from, so I'll do my best. Um, when it comes to resources and saying that the economy is based on the resources within it, is that rather than basing your economy, say, um, on what an artificial market value for something would be, the economy is calculated instead on what resources are available in a given situation, okay? Um, rather than saying, well, I have 100 apples, I can probably get people to pay $5 each, you would instead look into, well, how many people need apples? How do we, you know, in, how do we cultivate apples to ensure that we're not overusing those apples? Um, how do we utilize science to be sure that those apples are the best nutrition for the people in question, although they could still choose to eat unnutritious things if they want to? Um, that's essentially, I would say, when you talk about resources, yes, you could be talking about anything and it could be considered subjective. What I will say is that resources don't include people. We're not talking about like uh, any kind of you know economical ideas that involve utilizing people. Um, these not in any situation that's not voluntary. So, um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess. Uh, here, here's where I'm coming from. It, you know, when I look at the definition of resources, and this is just looking at some 
book definition. I, I'm not saying this is technically correct or anything, uh, but this is what most economists usually go by, is that it includes resources are typically materials or services or staff or other assets for capital formulation uh, that are then you know, utilized uh, in the course of action. So I guess I guess what a lot of confusion comes from people is when they say resource-based economy. To most people, it sounds like you're going to be controlling not just, you know, things like property or tangible items, but also people as well because it's included in the standardized definition of resource. So you can see the confusion, right? Yeah, I can understand what you mean. Um, okay. Overall, I think that um, what Jacques was trying to get at is that the economy should be based on what resources are available in a given situation and not necessarily upon just random acts of trade. Okay. Let's go to the uh, another definition real quick. We just have a few of these to get out of the way. Uh, what is the, How do you define a free market? How do I define a free market? Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> well, there are a lot of – that's another thing that I've, I've heard an awful lot of arguing about. So, um, And as a former market libertarian myself – I would have to say that uh, most of like the crux of it um, is that you're talking about a market free of any governmental or state interference. People are free to trade. Um, there are property rights involved. Uh, what those property rights constitute seems to be different depending on who I talk to. So once again, you know, it's subjective. Some people, for example, think that intellectual property is critical. Some people think that intellectual property is tyranny. So. The best that I can say would be, you know, you're trying to look at a system when you talk about free market ideologies, there's no governmental interference directly in the, in the market itself. Um, the, the concept behind the free market is that people will arrive at the best price um, where competitive forces are put into play, where people essentially, for example, if you make a widget and I make a widget, then the best price will be achieved in theory because you and I are going to compete uh, on the quality of our product versus the price that is offered. Um, the theory being that the one that can respond to the consumer demand the best will be the one that will be the product that is therefore uh, most uh, successful. Okay. Um, does that sound correct to you? Yeah. Yeah, I guess just to let your listeners know, real quick summary for me, what I view as a free market is a, a society that allows you know peaceful people to do whatever they want as long as they don't infringe on others. Uh, now, usually that does require that there be no state, and that we're not saying there's no private infringement. Uh, you know, people obviously somebody can steal from you or in, in our in our society, or somebody could hit you, uh, and and obviously that is. Um, against free market ideals, but it, it's still within a free market, although it's looked down upon, frowned upon, and can even be persecuted or restitution-based. So, uh, yeah, good, good stuff. Um, the, the, one of the last things I want you to define before we move on is uh, the word coercion. Coercion comes in many forms. Um, this is actually something that's not just specific to Zeitgeist thought. Um, it's also something that kind of moves on into my own thought. And Stefan Mullen and I discussed this as well. Um, coercion, obviously, there's the physical form of coercion, wherein I'm literally just physically forcing you to do uh, something, whether it you know, like be a physical force, whether I'm threatening you with violence or whatever. Um, but I think that simply defining it solely uh, in the issue of physical violence is not sufficient. And I've discussed this also with people in regards to the non-aggression principle. 
I think that the non-aggression principle concept needs to evolve also to include psychological versions of coercion. Um, I shouldn't be seeking to control somebody, even, you know, for example, if I shout at somebody and try to manipulate them through fear, that's still coercion. Um, is it physical? No. But, as Stefan Molyneux pointed out when he and I discussed this on his show, it is found that uh, coercion, like psychological coercion, meaning psychological attacks and such, do have a physical um, manifestation, as in it does damage. That's why he's very against yelling at your children, he's against spanking your children, etc., etc. Um, so, I believe that psychological coercion, if anything, is even more insidious. It's just like when you're talking about uh, different forms of child abuse. Psychological child abuse is definitely damaging and destructive. Are there any bruises? No. In, in my opinion, that actually makes it worse because it's harder to treat. If you break a child's arm, I can take them to a hospital and fix them. If I break their spirit or their self-esteem, that may not even be apparent right away. So <clears throat> those are two forms of coercion. In the terms of structural violence, which is a term that's been uh, bandied around lately because of the recent Stefan Malin and Peter Joseph debate, structural violence is a situation essentially where the system itself can be coercive in that if I am the person in control over the resources that you need to survive, then I have a certain ability to coerce you. You see this yourself when you're in a situation perhaps at a job and your boss is abusing his authority over you and, and, for example, here just give you a real-life example. There was a time, for example, I got a job uh, working at a store, and I told the lady, um, hey, I just need one Sunday off a month. And she said, yeah, that's no problem. And then as I started working there, I guess she was having trouble finding somebody for this single Sunday in a month. So uh, one day she schedules me for that one Sunday that I need. And I said, hey, I, I really kind of need that day off. I told you about this. It's the only day that I even ask for off every month. And she's like, yeah, I know that. I also know you need to feed your children and you need to pay your bills. So at that time, she also knew that the job situation in uh, the place where we lived was horrible and that I was not likely to get another job. So she recognized that she had a great deal of coercive force uh, over me in that situation. And I ended up having to work that Sunday until I could find another job, which didn't happen for a few months. Um, so those are different examples of coercion that I think may inevitably end up coming up at some point during the course of this conversation. No, fair enough. And one thing I would like to say is that when you were talking about yelling and how we might not view that as coercion, if there was a threat implied or force was implied in that threat, uh, in that in that statement, then that is to us uh, we, that can be viewed as coercion and, and uh, so. I think the, the the thing that really makes it coercion or not from my perspective is the ideal that is there is there a force or threats implied and can I leave the scenario so if I have some boss yelling at me can I just quit and go get a better boss or start up a new company or grow my own food on my own lawn so that's I guess where you know the, there might be a little bit difference between you and I is that although I disagree with yelling at people I don't think it's productive I cannot see that as technically a crime. Uh, that would be you know, punishable by any measure, uh, as long as the person can leave and there's no threats implied. So I just wanted to kind of add that before we moved on. Well, for sure. Let me clarify a little bit, though, if you don't mind. Um, sure. If the person can leave, 
Um, I've seen, for example, uh, people who have been coerced through psychological, you know, very strategic psychological manipulation. So to while they absolutely physically could leave, it didn't mean they were in a psychological state to leave. This is actually something that uh, fascists, uh, the status of the most evil variety, depend on quite a bit. Through enough psychological conditioning, you can get somebody to be caged without any kind of physical chains. So, I mean, that's another element to it. And that's why I'm saying it's insidious, because it's not even necessarily noticed. There are a lot of people that, for example, got involved with the Nazi party that would tell you that by the time they really knew what was going on, they were essentially prisoners in that situation. Right. It, does, it doesn't mean that they're not responsible for what they're doing. I'm not saying that. But it doesn't change the fact, though, that there are, there are other elements to it that we're only really starting to understand now. Um, the other thing that I would point out is that the reason, you know, for example, I had this guy who we, we dealt with in the Zeitgeist Movement forums forever ago who justified yelling and insulting people because in the military they use repeated rhythmic insult to <laughs> brainwash people. Um, now, mind you, this guy is not a Zeitgeist Movement member. The point is, though, is that he was justifying and detailing brainwashing tactics utilized by fascists and statists in our military that you can brainwash somebody through repeated rhythmic insult. It creates all kinds of fears. Is there a direct physical threat? Maybe not necessarily, but the threat to someone's reputation, the threat to someone's uh, public perception, for example. This is the reason that people pick on you in high school. It's all a dominance game. They want to have control over you within that social structure. And that's something else that I pointed out to people all the time. You know, in the high school game of popular versus unpopular, those kids generally don't have a lot in the way of state assistance to establish their tyranny, the, the popular kids who push around the unpopular kids. Um, and sometimes they have a monopoly on force. You know, they're bigger than you or whatever, but not always. In many cases, there's just a very clear uh, psychologically enforced hierarchy wherein if you don't, if you associate with people that I tell you not to, then we will psychologically torture you. We will humiliate you publicly until you do what we want. And I think that those are the fears that had an immense amount of control over many people when they were in school or just in, you know, as many social situations in general that someone is playing in. So is there a, a threat of immediate force? I don't think that that's sufficient. Because if you're attacking somebody's self-esteem or threatening their reputation, the way that people react to them, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, you can physically leave, but it doesn't stop. That's why we have, for example, defamation, um, you know, as, as something that you can sue somebody for. Because yeah, I can walk away from defamation. It doesn't mean that it's not still destroying my life. So I don't want to go on that too much as a whole other topic, but I think you get where I'm coming from. No, I definitely do, and you know, I'm not one to to bully people around. I would say somebody is bullying you around to ostracize them if you can. Uh, you know, obviously, if you're living in a sick society, it's awfully, awfully <laughs> and you have a lot of sick people around you. You know, this is kind of the thing. Is, is I think most people are just uh, have a bully mentality from the start. Uh, not that they they're born that way, but the society and culture has really geared them towards that, and you know that whole image. Uh, now. Let's let's let me move on from that topic real quick. But one, one last thing I, I mentioned on that too, I think if you actually if anybody does go to Porkfest, I welcome anybody to go to Porkfest, or you know anything like the new the New Hampshire Free State Project. You're going to see a lot of people living together peacefully without bullying. So I think in general, out of all the anarcho-capitalists or voluntarists or whatever you want to call them, I've met, I I, that, I don't I don't find that bullying uh, in in most of them. 
so, yeah, we obviously look down on it in a personal realm. We just When we look at coercion, on a bigger picture the, from an anarcho-capitalist perspective, I think we're looking at is it a punishable crime or not. And uh, just because it's not punishable uh, by restitution of some type, you know, like somebody hitting somebody else and knocking a tooth out and having to pay for their teeth to get fixed or something like that. If it's if it's something else, then really uh, it, we we can't put restitution on them just for hurting somebody else's feelings. Although we look down on it uh, from a different personal perspective. So, uh, we, you know, we 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 have this kind of dual layer where it's you have uh, what you can do in the real world as far as you know justice and securing your own life and property. Uh, and then there's this other realm where you can have your own preferences in life. You can associate with who you want, freedom of association, all that stuff. Uh, but at the same time, I think most people uh, – and the market generally tends to, to go towards people working together. I, I think that's a general truth uh, in the end that people – you know, this is, goes back to the whole pencil thing. I don't want to do the anarcho-capitalism thing tonight because I know it's the next show. But right. the, you know, the pencil basically shows that you can get a Muslim and a Jew and a Christian and an atheist, uh, let alone people of all different skin colors who might be racist. They can work together and probably don't even know that they're working together to create a pencil from a million different uh, productive factors. So that's one thing I'd like to say, you know, just to, to let everybody know, I think both Zeitgeistian people and most anarcho-capitalists really hold that, that uh, anti-bullying stance pretty close to our hearts because we even use the anti-bullying stance when we try and show government. So, you know, just trying to show that. <laughs> so let's, let's go ahead and move on. There's a lot of you know, people will, will, will say Zeitgeist is uh, communism with robots, and I want to give you a chance to basically answer, how is Zeitgeist factually different from statist socialism or communism? Well, let's play the the point that we, first of all, once again, need to define what it is that we're talking about. Because obviously, as somebody who I've already said, I have friends who are socialists, I have some friends who are communists. You mean, you know, like at the Occupy movement, there were so many people of different groups. It wasn't just left, it wasn't just right. That being said, First of all, let me ask you, how do you define socialism and communism, and what examples would you give? Yeah, socialism and communism is at least generally characterized in most definitions by some form of central planning. So in, a, in effect, uh, a lack of property rights and then usually uh, a lack of, of money, uh, you know, nobody having to have a medium of exchange, and that plans will be made not by the individual per se, but by some other entity outside of the individual, such as a collective that might – they might have, in most cases, like state communism and state socialism. They would have maybe politicians or a direct democracy or something like that, uh, whereas in other forms of communism, it's more of a workers' management, but it's it's not – based around individual property rights. It's based around uh, plans being directed by somebody outside the individual that's usually central planned in a region. Okay. Um, do you think the Soviet Union was an example of socialism? Uh, I think out of all of the, if we look at, because no, no country has ever been fully communistic nor fully capitalistic, in my opinion, uh, I think that they were obviously closer out of many countries to that. They tried to use a pricing mechanism still inside of, of the industries that they had monopolized. So they did monopolize some industries. I would think it would it'd be more closer to socialism on a mixed economy scale, though. And to me, you know, they tried to still use pricing st structures. Now, of course, the pricing structures inside of the, of the Soviet Union were completely obliterated 
uh, because you lose all exchange. If you can't, if two people can't exchange and come to their own valuation or an equilibrium for a price, then there's no feedback mechanism. So what they had to do, the Soviet Union had to use uh, prices from outside in the capitalist world to try to equate their stuff. So if you're, it's really hard to say that anybody is pure communistic when, in essence, they're living in a global, more capitalistic, more private property world, especially after the Industrial Revolution happened and private property started to take off. Uh, I, I think you know it's really hard to say that anybody is truly communistic, but they would be generalized closer to communism and socialism than a lot of the other first world regions at the time. Okay, so I guess the answer, and I'm not saying this to be snarky, the answer is sort of, kind of. I, I'm sorry, I just I want to get what you're saying. Um, so you're saying so it is a good example, or it's the best example? No, no, not the best example. A best example. It's kind of like saying, what's the best example of a free market right now? And I don't think there's ever been anything close to a free market. Uh, the thing is, you know, you can't decide, you can't have everybody decide on when everybody else breathes. I mean, now that, that's to me, you'd have to have everybody vote on when to vote, on when to vote, on when to breathe. So that's impossible, in my opinion, to have true, full communism of every resource, including people in the, you know, in the standardized definition of resource. So. Uh, to me, I don't think it's a, a perfect example or anything. anything. It, it was pretty close to it, though, because they did monopolize quite a few industries, and they priced out a lot of uh, smaller competitors out of business just to give you know a, a, an oligopoly, at least, if not a monopoly, to some companies uh, inside of their structure. And they did try to kill off some pricing mechanisms, some feedback me mechanisms for individual action. So I, I think it is an, an example, but I don't think it's a full example or a perfect example. Okay. Um, well... I can only tell you, first of all, starting with the fact that in order to learn about socialism, I went and talked to socialists, um, people who, uh, uh, for example, who might want to go through my archives can find an interview with a fellow by the name of Patty Joe Shannon. He was one of the filmmakers involved with capitalism and other kid stuff, um, which is actually a pretty decent film. It doesn't uh, go into socialist theory. It just kind of talks about their critiques of capitalism itself. Um, another person that I talked to, uh, actually, ironically, back when I was a libertarian candidate for Congress, uh, my show was libertarian-focused at that time. Uh, the B&B radio is not for Venus. And, uh, um, and I had the Socialist Party USA's candidate, Brian Moore, on my, tele on my radio show more than once. And he was a nice guy, and I asked him um, what he felt uh, through the Socialist Party USA's point of view was. So... Patty Joe Shannon is more of an anarcho-socialist, and uh, Brian Moore, I would say, is still a state socialist. Um, and there were two different approaches. I think that uh, people, especially in the anarchist environments, the anarcho-capitalist environments in particular, don't understand the concept of anarcho-socialism or anarcho, that you can have those things. Um, and I went into that, actually. I, I had that same argument with people in the past. But let me get to the, the nitty-gritty. Brian Moore described that you know, if he were elected president, then uh, the state socialist solutions that he would succeed uh, would, would want to see would be more direct democracy, um, the nationalization of the means of production, um, and you know, like you said, kind of like a workers' rights more focused uh, way of doing things. Very little hierarchy, if any, um, and essentially a system wherein taking care of everybody is, you know, is everyone's goal. Um, 
so essentially the picture that he painted for me, and it has been a while since he talked to me, I didn't come away from it thinking that I was dealing with somebody from the National Socialist Party, nor was I dealing with any communist fascist from the Soviet Union. He definitely, he was still describing a state, but his version of a state was very much for the people, by the people. Um, the other thing that he pointed out, which I have a tendency to agree with, was the weaknesses of representative democracies and republics. I actually just watched a Larkin Rose video not long ago pointing about the weaknesses of republics. Um, that just because a group of people got together and elected other people to make decisions for them does not somehow mean that they're going to have more freedom. And there are certainly flaws to direct democracy as well, but um, as I feel governments like Switzerland have demonstrated, the average citizen in Switzerland tends to have, well, at least from what I understand, people who have talked to live there, more control over their life and more satisfaction with their liberty. Um, they also, mind you, have the right to just secede if they don't agree with things that are going on. And I think that's another kind of key issue. Uh, the anarcho-socialist uh, version of things is different you know, because there isn't really a, a state apparatus as you understand it. It's people freely associating um, to, you know, and freely sharing their resources. There's nobody showing up at your door demanding that you give them stuff. Um, so I will let other people speak for those those groups. I would say that principally, one of the main things that I would say I disagree with them on is, well, obviously, I'm not a statist. Um, I don't think that the state is the final evolution of mankind. Uh, I think that it serves an unfortunate purpose right now um, in a manner similar to what Mises, you know, uh, Ludwig von Mises would have described, or even Ayn Rand would have described, because they're both minarchists. Um, you know, this is the, the unfortunate purpose of the state, you know, in its current form, that's what, you know, they say. But I'm not a So um, for anarcho-socialism, I would say that the main differences between us and them is that they don't really emphasize enough on the scientific method. There's still a democratic model that is subject to um, individual opinions and uh, politics that can still very much happen even in a horizontal system. When I was at Occupy, they had a very horizontal system, and I would say it worked pretty well, but there's still, you know, there's still personalities who had a lot of sway with the quote-unquote mob, you know, that's the mob rule element. Um, in this, in the, the Venus Project, there is a participatory democracy system that is described but it is guided immediately by the scientific method. I can be the most charismatic orator in the world if I cannot logically and rationally produce scientific evidence for why we should be doing what it is that I suggest. I'm not going to win that participatory democracy over. Um, there's also a big emphasis, for example, uh, the, the terrible examples of communism um, that were given previously were very fascist in the way they went about doing things. They relied on prisons and guns and laws and rules. And um, we are anti-statists in the regard that we don't think that any of those things is a really good solution either, that there are rife opportunities, you know, that will breed corruption and inevitably abuse. Um, so, I mean, I'd give a, one of the things that I, is like I, I used the, because I, I knew that we were going to be talking about this tonight, so you know, you gave me a couple of links, and one of the things that I would point out, for example, um, about, you know, in regards to the failures of central planning, I would say that the resource-based economy model moves closer to decentralized planning, a bottom-up way of running things with all people participating in a participatory democracy, the scientific method being the primary guide, as I just described earlier. 
okay, reliant on data that is scientifically gathered, not just half-assed opinions of politicians who inevitably have agendas. Um, the beginning phases of it would be closer to left libertarianism or some forms of anarcho-syndicalism. Um, and it, for example, uh, ironically, even within the communist circle, central economic planning has been criticized by proponents of decentralized economic planning. For example, Leon Trotsky believed that central planners, regardless of their intellectual capacity, operated without the input and participation of the millions of people who participate in the economy and would therefore be unable to respond to local conditions quickly enough to effectively coordinate all economic activity. That's a quote from um, Wikipedia about that topic. Um, so information and the free flow of information, I think another major difference in how a resource-based economy would be achieved as opposed to any of the failed attempts um, of previous uh, quote-unquote centrally planned, which once again, as I've demonstrated, it's, we don't do things that way, um, is that uh, the most people who actually review what went on in the Soviet Union uh, point out that it didn't become a centrally planned economy um, in the sense that it was supposed to be. It became what is known as an administrative command economy, uh, basically a hierarchical uh, centralized administrative decision-making in the absence of popular democratic oversight as the essential coordinating feature. In other words, there's this little group of people that are making arbitrary decisions about where resources and such are going to go. Um, they're not in any way held accountable uh, to the scientific method. They're not in any way made to prove anything. And what ends up happening frequently, as history demonstrates, with these kinds of groups of people in this hierarchy system is that, um, in fact, like you can find different arguments like the case against hierarchy and stuff, is that people who put, get put in a hierarchical position have a tendency to abuse it. So you don't have one in the first place. There is no system of hierarchy in place in the Venus Project solutions. Um, the only hierarchy, the only thing that we consider to be infallible is to do our best to use the scientific method to achieve the best answer that we have at the moment. Politicians with agendas are not in any way bound by that. That's how you end up with people getting elected to Congress who are obstetricians, as I said earlier, who may or may not even have any knowledge about what it is that they're talking about in their various day-to-day -day decisions. Um, we think that that entire system is totally flawed. So I can go on with some more things that I think make us different, unless you have a further elaboration question. Yeah, well, here's here's my, my two cents on it. I, I guess... This is my issue. I always feel like uh, it's, it feels really democratic in a zeitgeist movement, you know, like you're talking about uh, the democratic majority is going to do this stuff. But why doesn't the democratic majority just do that stuff through the state? Why, why do you need to have the zeitgeist? Why can't you just have people change and then do it through the state with, if, if that's the case? Could you, quote-unquote, Venus Project eyes a state apparatus? No. What, I, what I'm asking is, why can't you transform the state into zeitgeist? Uh, like, why why hasn't any? I see you guys don't vote in politics, right? To to me, though, I mean, everybody sells that as a democracy. To me, I think that's the closest thing we've ever seen to a true democracy. Because I don't once again, I don't think a true democracy is possible. Because that means you have to vote on everybody else's actions or the resources all the time, every single second of every single day. You'd have to be on the internet, you know, clicking votes instead of living your life all the time. So uh, to me, it, it, I'm just curious to why you would not vote in the state 
but you will fill out a survey or, or and send it into the. Let's let's let me backtrack here a little bit. First, this should be like a yes yeah. or no question. I have to ask this: Is Zeitgeist based on the non-aggression principle? The non-aggression principle, as you understand it, um, when I made the transition, um, and please don't forget about these other things that you asked about because I want to answer. I won't. I won't. Okay. Um, the non-aggression principle. When I, because I went from being a free market libertarian to becoming a Zeitgeist member, I didn't find anything in my vast research that in any way moved against that. Um, if you go to the video that I've linked a couple times on your Facebook, it is the first thing that the listeners asked me when I was in Venus, Florida, talking to Jack Pascoe, what do you do about people who are not compliant, etc. He's like, well, you don't try to force anybody to do anything. You take these ideas and you present them. You know, that's why I said earlier, you know, if you have a good idea, then the appeal, the, the, the ideas are bulletproof, need for vendetta kind of way of looking at it. Um, so basically, that answers a lot of the questions people ask about, like, okay, so, well, do you, you know, do you advocate, you know, using violence to make this happen and all that other nonsense because, you know, they read about um, uh, Soviet Russians or whatever doing that. Let me, let me get to the core of the attitude about the Venus Project and violence. We want a nonviolent, peaceful society, absent violence, absent the need for laws or police. In order to achieve that, you have to have a good degree of understanding of human behavior. And through the works of people like James Gilligan, you can look him up, uh, Pierre Mate, Robert Sapolsky from Stanford, different experts in these fields talk about the origins of what creates violence within a given society. Violence begets violence. If I, for example, set up an apparatus um, to force people into doing things rather than convincing people, you can't get understanding through coercion or violence. You can get compliance, but that only lasts so long as there's a threat of violence. This is the weakness of fascism. We believe that a people that are educated to utilize critical and analytical thinking to review evidence will come to these conclusions on their own. And if we did try to force anybody to do it, they themselves will create anomalous behavior within our, you know, within our communities. Basically, if you believe that violence begets violence, and if you understand, like, you know, I mean, Stefan Molyneux goes off on it all the time, the various, uh, you know, causes of violent behavior. He talks about it all the time. Well, you know, like uh, parents hitting their children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these different causes um, are evidence of that. There are scores and scores of studies that talk about this. Um, so, therefore, the non-aggression principle is covered because of the fact that not only do we, it's not just about morality. Morality is not sufficient, okay? It has to be about what is logical and rational. And the fact of the matter is, violence is just not effective. It's not. Every fascist organization in the history of mankind that relied on violence eventually imploded. You can't keep people under control that way. And if you really want a peaceful society, it can't be made at the point of a gun. I mean, it, that's that's the essence. Okay. Okay. So, so why do you guys not vote? Well, you know, that's the thing, actually. Um, that particular issue is not necessarily spelled out 
Um, for example, I had a conversation with Jacques Fresco and with Peter Joseph about this topic, and I kind of won them over. Um, but when we talked about earlier about democracies, why wouldn't we just use the state? Uh, well, that kind of brings me, first of all, to my problems with the monetary system. Our quote-unquote democracy exists in entirely in a plutocratic, plutocracy-like environment. I actually think that the, especially when you study the, the real history of the United States, we have kind of always been a plutocracy pretending to be a representative democracy. There were a lot of people among the founding fathers. I think it was Madison who said the wealth of the nation should rule the nation. There never really has been any real democracy in the United States that was not entirely owned by people of wealth. And I don't hate all people of wealth. That's not what this is about. But the point is, is that to ever, and you know, and just like Peter Joseph said uh, in Zeitgeist Addendum, it is an insult to our intelligence to believe that the political system, as it is currently set up, is in any way a true democracy. How can it be a true democracy if I have to fight for fundraising for you know good causes, like you know, not long ago, for example, uh, free and equal elections had to go through a lot to be able to get a voice for people like uh, Justice Party candidates, Green Party candidates, Libertarian Party candidates, Constitution Party candidates. That, that's not democracy. That's essentially, I have access to the people if and only if I have the approval of the owners of Fox News and NBC and CBS. You know, that's not democracy, not even close. Um, and the, the major huge difference, I would say, is that, um, in fact, I did a show that uh, even your anarcho-capitalist guys are totally love called On the Subject of Sheeple. It's literally my favorite e-radio show ever. And I played a list of basically various recordings of people talking about people that they might like to vote for and how completely shallow their understanding of those politicians was. In many cases, they said they were going to vote for, say, Barack Obama because one of the girls thought he was attractive. Uh, one guy was voting for him because obviously he was racially motivated, and then there were other people who didn't vote for Barack Obama because they were racially motivated. Um, you know, there's so much ridiculous lack of education in that kind of system. It's not a true democracy at that point. That is the definition of mob rule because you have a bunch of people that aren't even really thinking about what it is that they're voting for. Most of them don't even understand how the government works. They're very focused on the president. But even within the design of our government, you can have a president who's uh, an independent. It doesn't matter because unless the Senate and the Congress are working together, that president can't do anything, at least not you know, as far as major changes. You know, most people are not even aware of that. In fact, most people I know when I ran for Congress, for example, didn't even know who their congressman was. Um, so those are all examples of how the state has essentially handed you bullshit claiming that it's democracy so that you can all have the illusion of choice. George Carlin talked about that. You know, you have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own all the important land. You know, they own uh, the judges, the Congress, the, you know, in their back pocket. You know, it's like you can you can find that actually anyway, you know, the, who, who owns you. It's a great George Carlin rant I've played on this show more than once. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, voting for politicians, we don't, some of us vote. For example, I vote for Green Party candidates generally because I think that there's a sociological factor at play. Um, I think, because for example, this was actually something ironically, when I was a libertarian, that Socialist Party candidate Brian Moore brought to my attention. He said, 
You know, I said, I asked him, I said, why would you, as a third party candidate, ever run for president as a socialist party candidate? And he said, you know, I said, you said you're basically, or no, I'm sorry, he said, you're basically saying, well, I would never win. Why would I do that? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that is kind of the blunt truth. Not that I'm going to win either as a libertarian. And he said, well, let me tell you a little bit of the history. Um, he said, you'll notice that a lot of people call Democrats socialists. And I said, well, yeah. He's like, that's because a long time ago, the Democrats wanted the Socialist Party's votes. The Socialist Workers Movement, there are many different incarnations of the Socialist Party, not just one. But regardless, he pointed out that the Socialist Movement had a huge impact on the Democratic Party. And essentially, partisan politics functions in such a way that those parties can either at least pay lip service to your ideas or adopt some of your platform, or they will lose votes to you. That is the only thing you can really stand to benefit from as a third-party politician. So I generally vote for people that I think represent my points of view. Because another thing that I know that is frequently done by statists is that, you know, it's the whole appeal to authority, appeal to, um, oh, Jesus, another fallacy for it. It's uh, basically the bandwagon fallacy. You know, okay, well, most people are Republicans or Democrats. Only the freaks are these little greens or libertarians. Look how small their voting turnout was. They use that as a propaganda tool against us, which is the reason why there is a disagreement um, within the zeitgeist movement about the issue of voting. But it is not specifically part of our platform. We are not a political movement. We don't think that the current political system will in any way actually affect positive change. You can get little bits here and there, but generally it's like a, uh, a game of, um, you know, uh, keep away like you know we're it's whack-a-mole it's whack-a-mole a mole pops up after you hit another one or well right or or we're talking about obamacare while obama's actually right now talking about another trade deal that is not ending up on the news but we're talking about obamacare you know we can't shut up about obamacare but we're not talking about ndaa you know th th there's all kinds of slime involved in that when i was running for congress um you know i most people didn't even know it was in the Patriot Act. And if you dared to, to question it, you know, they, they would tell you you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. I actually had to take someone to the White House website and read it to him. And he still would just make excuses. But I could tell that I had an effect on him when he read it, read it on WhiteHouse.gov. All right, you know? well, I, well here, here's, here's my question. Seeing how human nature is, right, and that usually people want to go into the state to gain advantages over others, and that the system really offers no real change back towards individualism or toward, towards anything that's peaceful, really. <laughs> uh, then, do you see do you see where the problem is that most people have with another type of a democracy coming out here and being sold as a democracy, and uh, knowing that we've gone through so much with what everybody already has called a democracy? You see what I'm saying? So, in other words. Uh, do you, are you trying to change human nature? Uh, is that is that really the end goal of Zeitgeist as well? Is to change human nature? I mean, I, it would be nice. Obviously, it's like as a voluntarist or an ANCAP, I would like to change people's you know natural actions. I guess maybe to something I would be more preferable to, towards. You know what I'm saying here? But at the same time, I can't use violence to ha have them do that. So, with with uh, as far as the Zeitgeist goes. Did you see what I'm getting at here, how the people sure, can look sure. at this and say, well, this is a democracy. Won't this just fall back into the same trap? I think that it's important to note that um, it kind of falls back to the propaganda that you might hear about the free market. You know, you 
people talk about the free market, and then you, you point out that, well, there never has been one, so what are you talking about? Um, I tend to feel that there might be some models to bring it up, but, for example, there are people that do the same thing with socialism. They do the same thing with anarchism in general. There are a lot of uh, huge quantities of propaganda, for example, were thrown back and forth between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Uh, Cold War people were told that, you know, capitalists eat babies. You know, I mean, I'm just using that as an extreme example. Right, right. And, of course, communist people were told, you know, it just vice versa. You know, it was it was propaganda on both sides. That's the reason why, you know, I was a child of the 80s. I remember watching Red Dawn and, you know, thinking we were going to go to war with those evil Russians. And then when I got older, I met some Russians. And then I met some socialists. And I met some communists. The funny thing is, is the shit that I had been told throughout my entire childhood was all a lie because they were hoping to gear us up to be ready to go to war with Russia. Okay, I, my mom, uh, bless her heart, was very big on cutting through all the nonsense during my education. Although I did go to public schools, uh, particularly in the matters of history, we would talk a lot about what was crap that was being offered to us. I think, and the reason I'm going on this particular point is to state that I think that most people don't really take the time to investigate things for themselves. Um, I do, and always have. Jacques Fresco would encourage you to do the same, and I think that a better society will be achieved when everybody does that. Critical and analytical thinking is the best guard against fascism. It's the best guard against anything that will try to infringe on your liberty. Any amount of philosophy beyond that is secondary to your ability to use your own brain. And when it comes to issues like democracy or what democracy means, I would point out a lot of the various things that people don't tend to talk about when it came to the formation of the United States. For example, the Constitution was written in secrecy behind closed doors that were locked and nobody was allowed to go inside. Okay, Does that sound like, the, you know, like a circumstance in which a free society was being designed or what were they up to? Well, you know, I bring that up because these people were also very much pushing about how evil democracy was supposed to be. And, well, that's because they happened to be a wealthy minority that was concerned that the majority might want to have some kind of uh, influence in the way they did things. If you look at the history of the United States, for example, uh, one good example, for example, the movie The Patriot. The movie The Patriot is still a Hollywood film and has a lot of inaccurate things about it. One thing that was not inaccurate is that the majority of the decision-making that went, went on in communities in the colonies was done via town hall meeting, consensus-based democracy. That the groups of people would get together and discuss the pros and cons of any given thing that they might be asked to do. The example in the movie is, are we going to go to war with England? Okay. But an important component of this issue, to avoid tyranny of the majority, is that I still have the right to back out if I don't want to, which Mel Gibson's character said, I'm not doing this. Not going to stop you, but I'm not helping you with this. I hate war. He eventually changed his mind. Um, when you study the history of what went on, um, actually it was Senator Mike Gravel was a fellow that I worked for in 2008 on his campaign. I'm actually the guy that convinced him to go from Democrat to Libertarian. Um, He's a good friend of mine. And he gave me his book because he was working on trying to create a democratic referendum ad amendment to the uh, Constitution when he was in, uh, in, in the Senate. And he's also, just to give you a little background, he's the guy that read the Pentagon Papers into the Congressional Record. He filibustered to end the draft. He's a bit of a, a hero in the freedom world. 
uh, just from the Vietnam era, so most people don't remember him. Uh, but anyway, uh, he pointed out that um, one of the concerns they had was that they were trying to get a constitution ratified that had slavery in it. Well, there's this problem. You see, the majority of the people in the North at that time, many of the states anyway, had majorities of citizens that did not approve of slavery. There was a lot of Quakers and people like that in the North. But the people in the South, of course, said, well, you're not going to take away our slaves. We need them for our functioning economy. So they could not ratify a constitution with slavery in it, and they could not ratify a constitution without slavery in it if the people were consulted. So they dreamed up this idea of delegates. Well, who gets to be the delegates? Well, generally, the only people who are going to get elected to be delegates are people who have money to walk around and campaign. So, in other words, the wealthy get together, convince us all that we will be far better off if we agree to this republic model where they tell us what's going on, and we, of course, get to pick from among them, you know, who's going to be our new leaders. And then they sell us this idea, we don't want a democracy, because that's two sheep, uh, you know, I'm sorry, two wolves telling one sheep what's for dinner. You, you, instead, it would be better for the two wolves to choose someone else to determine what's for dinner. And he could just as well be a wolf, but hey, you know, there was so much propaganda and bullshit that was thrown around about what democracy was back then. And I think that people should really look into this for themselves. Yes, there are there are concerns about democracy, um, but I think overall, in comparison to the crap that we've been sold, I will still take uh, a referendum model over a representative democracy any day. That being said, it's extremely, this is another thing, we don't really talk very much about democracy in the Zeitgeist Movement or in the Venus Project. It's not central, because and the reason we don't is because of that loaded language that you're talking about, is that people have a lot of misconceptions about what they think a democracy is. I'm talking about a democracy in the sense of a group of scientists sitting at a table talking about how to build the best um, space shuttle. There doesn't even necessarily have to be any voting. It's a group of minds gathering and sharing information, coming to a consensus, testing hypothesis, and then arriving at a conclusion based upon what they have rationally observed. And if somebody else comes around later and proves that they were incorrect, fine. You know, well, now that's what we're doing now. You know, Jacques Fresco points to the example that there were scientists who were writing books about why man would never fly when a couple of bicycle mechanics built the right flyer. Because, and at that point, well, flight is now science. You proved it. You didn't have to be part of our elite technocratic scientific community, you're a couple of bicycle mechanics, and you prove that man-made flight is, is real. Good for you. Now we have a flight science. Now we have aerospace, et cetera, et cetera. So, All right. go ahead. What, what if what if you have somebody who says, I think that to make this amazing, because we're going to make all the things the best we can. So, let's say we have this refrigerator, and we're going to have uh, I, I, I'm a scientist. You know, this is all hypothetical, and I'm saying, I think we should use uh, three and a half cubic ounces of this certain iron and put it in uh, the metal and somebody else says well I think we should use 0.01% uh, diamond composition or something like that and there's a conflicting uh, problem here and, and the two people on the two sides maybe there's a group of scientists here maybe there's a third option and all these people can't come to a conclusion on how to program the, the, the whatever you know system is going to be delegating out these resources so, you know, this computer system, 
who, who, what happens when you have a, a variety of different ideals and there is no majority? What, what happens then? Well, the majority, once again, is not really what decides it. But I would kind of move on to what, what you generally do in engineering next is let's make a couple of prototypes. Let's test which one of those prototypes is more effective because it's natural law, the laws of the universe, so to speak. And I don't mean natural law in some of the philosophical senses. I mean physics, uh, you know, chemistry. These things don't vary by opinion. Um, if, your chemi- if your computer model is better than my computer model, then that performance can be tested, just like any other physical phenomenon. But what if it's a subjective value? I mean, we, we can't... How, how are you going to have a valuation of something? Maybe I value something more than somebody else. Maybe I think the iron is stronger composition than somebody else. Even after seeing the test results, uh, isn't isn't completely swayed over. I mean, there's going to be gray areas. Uh, there's there's people even inside of, of individual companies right now trying to fight over which way to do things as far as Google. Should we add this and do that? And other, another team inside of Google saying, no, if you do that, you're going to make a lot of customers upset. And a lot of them say, well, if we add this, you're going to make this many customers happy. And finally, at some point, somebody there has to come to a decision uh, on what to do. Who's going to, There's got to be a final arbiter of some type uh, for it. If, if you're going to have a decision-making inside the system, there's got to be some kind of a final arbitration inside the system, too. So even let's say we go through these tests and people still aren't on board 100% one way or another, how, how are these differences taken into account? Um, I think the only problem with the scenario that you're presenting is that you can think that the, the iron is stronger as much as you want. If you can't prove that through testing your, your um, their prototypes, it's irrelevant. Your, your opinion is irrelevant at that point. It's what you can demonstrate. That's why we have, like, you know, for example, the military. The military develops multiple prototypes for the next fighter jet. They test those prototypes against one another. Now, mind you, there's a lot of financial hoopla bullshit involved in the military-industrial complex. So don't, you know, I don't want you to think that for any means I don't think there isn't a bunch of other bullshit, because there is. It's another reason why we want to get rid of the profit motive, and it's one of the the reasons why we want to get money out of these kinds of decisions in the first place. That said, the military tests, uh, say the P-51 Mustang against another model, against another model, which one's faster, which one's stronger, which one takes a better hit, which one has the better weapon capacity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are measurable physical phenomenon, not subject to opinion. At the end of the day, if you still, for example, want to develop that computer system for yourself, we're not going to stop you. There, there's no force implied. Okay. The only final arbiter is what can be proven in a scientific research capacity. All right, wait, well, okay. Sorry, go ahead. And that is also superior to most models you will see because it is subject to change. In, in the example I gave of the right flyer, if later on science through superior technology figures out, no, we were wrong about X thing, then that becomes the new norm. All right, so, so this brings me to my next question. Uh, are people allowed to own private property? Well... First of all, uh, let's define a little bit more about what we mean by that. Um, within the Venus Project, uh, the, the, the model that is suggested, um, hold on just a second. Um, private property, personal property is the term I tend to like to use. You want to have stuff? Fine. Okay. 
Uh, Peter Joseph actually covers this in the in a, one of his first presentations, like his orientation presentations. You want to own golf clubs? Fine, own golf clubs. We're going to make golf clubs that are available, that have been tested, that you know we feel are the best. But if you want to own your own golf clubs, that's okay. You're now taking responsibility for those resources, their storage, their care, whatever. That's your thing. There is no telling you you can't own golf clubs. But you're talking about a society wherein uh, people are very conscious of resources. And more specifically, your connection to the expenditure of resources and how important that is to mankind's survival as a species. Okay, You're talking about a society that is educated scientifically to understand that for example, if we make a bunch of plastic garbage, like the huge piles of cell phones that we have currently in our system, that, that has real um, consequences for everybody who lives here. Okay, So I, you, you often end up with, I don't want to call them straw men, and I'm not sure what fallacy you would use for this term, but you'll end up with people asking you questions like, well, what if somebody wants to own 300 jumbo jets? I generally have to say to them, first of all, I ask them, why? Why would anybody want 300 jumbo jets? They usually don't have an answer. They just kind of wiggle around and they go, well, they just want to. And I'm like, okay, so you're asking me a question based on an entirely irrational premise. I could ask you, what if someone uh, wants a thousand pink bunnies and it would be just as relevant? Okay. Is it possible that they're going to be anomalies? Yes. We're not into uh, telling people what to do we're into suggesting to people based on science and encouraging people to be good critical and analytical thinkers to be able to make educated decisions on their own about what they want to do as far as ownership of items and things. Um, second of all, the paradigm, in fact, this is something Stefan actually said recently in one of his broadcasts that he called like the moral danger of the zeitgeist movement or whatever, and barely any of the conversation was even about the zeitgeist movement. But what I'm po pointing out now is actually something he said about anarcho-capitalism. The current people we have now could not just exist in an anarcho-capitalist society. That's what he said. We tend to feel that that's very similar to what would be necessary to make a lot of the changes in a fully realized resource-based economy. Remember what I said earlier about how we're talking about different phases of evolution into a resource-based economy? Mm -hmm. In the final stage, you're talking about people who, first of all, uh, take advertising off the table take artificial uh, things that are pushed through advertising, uh, such as fashion and novelty and the social stratification element of I own a Ferrari, therefore I am a better human being than someone who does not own a Ferrari. The kind of nonsense that you're taught once again in school, I remember very distinctly being treated as though I were a lesser human being because I wore Wrangler jeans that had a little square on them that said Wrangler and not guest jeans that had a little triangle on them that said guest. You know, all of these kinds of artificial bullshit notions about <coughs> why people tend to desire the property that they have now would be gone. So I, what about what about land? Land? Well, land falls into the idea of the common ownership theory that some things, it's not about saying you can't have it. <coughs> it's about saying that, <coughs> sorry, in a free society, some things probably should not really belong to any one individual, but should belong to everyone. If you want to occupy a space, 
go ahead. And this is another thing I want to point out. I'm talking about the rules within a Venus Project society. If you are not into that and you want to go, say, I, you know, for example, Charlie Beach from the Love Police, he was an anarcho-primitivist. And I said, if, if you want to go out in the forest and, and do whatever, that's fine. You know, we're not going to stop you. You know, do your thing. And in fact, if you run into any of the dangers of an anarcho-primitivist society, you know, like maybe you don't have a hospital for your wife and she's breech birthing, we'll help you. Bring her back to us. You know, it's the same thing. If you, for example, uh, you guys wanted to create a gulch, gulch, gulch of anarcho-capitalists and go live somewhere, whatever, that's fine. It's... <laughs> If you want to, if you want to own property and say that that's yours, that's fine. We're trying to evolve to a point where that notion itself is obsolete, like that it's just not necessary. It's one of the things, ironically, we have in common with most and with anarcho-primitivists, as ironic as that is, is that they had a similar notion. Like when you came over here, like when I'm sorry, when the Europeans came over here and talked to the Native Americans about land ownership, they were kind of confused about the principle because, well, who would ever how does someone own the land? You know, like, that doesn't make any sense to us. We don't, we don't get that. But the land's everybody's, you know. Um, so the the answer to your question is within a Venus Project society, if you want to, say, occupy one of the public buildings that are set up for people living in, there are houses in most of the city models as well as apartments. Jock tends to think that more people are going to want the fancy apartments because they're local and close to everything else within the city structures, um, you can. Go where you want. Um, hey, I got, a, I got a lot of questions. I, 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 we got to kind of move on to the next one here. Sure. And, and, and it does correlate with that. Does a resource-based economy need to control all resources in a certain area or throughout the world? You know, that, that comment comes up, and, I, and it's a very valid question, and let me kind of try to assure people. When we say things like we feel that this is a model that must be realized globally. It's not because we believe that force is a way to go about creating that situation. We have a concern that if mankind does not become very conscious about resource expenditure, about pollution, um, et cetera, et cetera, you're not going to have to worry about any evil leftists showing up to take your stuff. We're going to render the planet uninhabitable, and then we're all going to die. That's, I mean, we don't generally go, we're all going to die. You know, we don't get into that. But that is essentially our fear, is that it's not that, you know, we think that you have to do this peaceful thing, you know, or therefore we need to stop you or whatever. We think that the situation on the planet itself will not tolerate our species continuing to exist in the patterns that it is, and we think that eventually mankind will destroy themselves. If we do right. not begin to utilize resources with a scientific method as our guide and the goal of the highest standard of living for all the world's people. All right, well, let's use the scientific method for a second and look at tragedy of the commons theory when we look back at numerous attempts to you know try to, to have a commons area uh, this is what created the Malthusian trap 
the Malthusian tribe basically made it so over thousands of years, real workers' wages didn't ever increase, right? Then uh, we don't even like talking about wages really here because uh, Zeitgeist doesn't want to have wages per se. But I think it's important to realize that the tribes of the commons, uh, for someone who might not hear it, let me just kind of summarize it real quickly. Imagine you have a field and uh, you have uh, – nobody owns it. And people can bring their lambs or cows or whatever they want onto it, and there's nobody there to, uh, with, with you know, stop the use of the land. Well, in many cases, what happens with the tragedy of the commons is that the land is overused, and that there's no incentive for anybody to have accountability or responsibility for the land, and that's why it goes ruined. And this is why public property uh, usually isn't the best well kept, uh, or it's overtaxed to keep it nice like the White House. <laughs> but my, my point is uh, that this public property is usually taken over by a few people and that the tragedy of the commons states that when there's no accountability or responsibility tied to an individual, there is more uh, uh, use, there is more pollution. And that I believe, you know, from my position, a voluntarist anarcho-capitalist position, that we are, are the ones who are really the environmentalists here because we're saying that if you pollute on somebody else or their property, then that's a crime and that that's that's discouraged in, in our society um, so to us we do we are you know we don't look at the, the modern state today and say this is an example of once again a free market it's obviously had a lot of, of, of public pressure and you know political uh, support from one side or another uh, the, the government today is, is considered the number one polluter if you just type the number one polluter in the world and it's the US government the military tanks and everything that are being pumped out it's it's not and some of the companies that they they might license to as well. You know the top boys really the top of this oligopoly, which is what government's there for, is to protect these few people. So what do you say about the tragedy of the commons theory, where there is no accountability or responsibility for any one individual? And what we've seen from a lot of history, which is uh, the fact that the commons area is usually depleted instead of being maintained. Well, um, I did do some research on the tragedy of commons at the behest of anarcho-capitalists who asked me to look into it. Um, I think the first example that would come to mind is that in my personal experience, which obviously is, is only my personal experience, but for example, here in Milan, Michigan, where I live, there is an RC uh, radio park, meaning it's meant for airplanes, model airplanes. The park is entirely maintained by the people who use it, um, it's the understanding with the city of Milan that if they're going to use it, that they have to maintain it. There are no uh, city officials, or like in other words, there's no people sent out other than occasionally the police visit to make sure everything's okay. Uh, the, and every time I go out there, the park is always very taken care of. And the community of the people who are involved in the radio-controlled airplane hobby uh, collectively work together to keep, you know, to take good, very care, good care of the site. And it's always pretty and, you know, uh, peaceful out there. I mean, I guess my, my main point, and I've seen the same kind of thing uh, in other situations. I think that, for example, one of the things about the public property that you see in a status situation, because once again we come back to a situation of status versus, um, people don't really feel responsible for it because it doesn't really belong to them in the way that they would understand it. Um, it all still belongs to the state. There's still a fence there. There's still people that can tell them they can't be there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have found, however, in communal situations, you often run into circumstances where people feel very compelled as a community to take care of what belongs to all of them. Okay. Um, basically, overall, I, you know, the tragedy of the common theory is that only through private property you know, are people, do people have an incentive to take care of it. Um, 
I have seen examples that would lead me to the conclusion that. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I want to uh, just say something right there. It's it's not that they have an incentive to necessarily. It's that there is actual a person there to be held accountable, uh, and so it rests on them. So in other words, if I buy a bunch of trees out in the forest and I just cut them all down. The value I'm going to get from the trees will not equal the land value because of the price and feedback mechanism of me cutting down all those trees. I have to replant to make the, the land more valuable again. Uh, unlike where in, in central planned uh, Amazon rainforest, where Brazil owns almost 80 to 85 percent of the rainforest, they just give these logging companies to the lobbyists you know, the central planners get up in bed with. And so after that, they just have an incentive to just log and then their contracts up in six months, they have no incentive to replant. But in it, what we see out of like the reason that trees have increased in America over the last 50 to 60 years is because there's an incentive, because there's accountability and responsibility held to an individual who had to put their own money where their mouth is to make the investment on this, might, what might not work, right? It's obviously a risky venture, every business is. Uh, but then on top of that, they have to think into the future, whereas what I've noticed from, and, and, and I don't, this is just from historical central planning, so a state-based violence back system, it's very short-term Sided, right? So it's just like, what do the people want tomorrow? What do the people want tomorrow? What do the people want tomorrow? Whereas when you hold accountability and responsibility to an individual and you lack the tragedy of the commons, you have to think into the long run to protect your, yourself. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. And first of all, uh, I think it would be my turn to use the very commonly used anarchist, anarcho-capitalist phrase, well, the state. As you pointed out, um, Brazil, for example, I think uh, as a quote-unquote centrally planned economy, is a grossly corrupt state. Pretty much most of the South American uh, countries uh, are all very corrupt examples of state circumstances. Um, and that land, um, I would instead, for example, compare the passion that the Native Americans showed for cultivating and keeping land um, healthy in their culture, or even the indigenous people who live in South America, okay, and how much they cared about their land, and how much they valued their land, and how important it was to them, to the point that they were willing to fight to protect it. Okay, um, I would use that as an example of the kind of commons that I'm talking about. I think that you know, as you also pointed out, you know, there's the state, there's also the monetary system. One of the things, for example, I played a video for myself when I was trying to you know get this tragedy of the commons concept. The guy pointed out like you know, okay, well if you have this pasture, and then there's all these people who need their cows to graze in the pasture. Well, everybody has an incentive to get the most out of the pasture for themselves, not necessarily for everyone else. Well, then you're, well, at that point, you're talking about a competitive society. We don't believe in a competitive society. We believe in a cooperative society. Um, and well, where, do you, where, where, do you, where do you think competition comes from? Because to me, competition just comes from the fact that there's not perfect information, that we have different opinions out there. So it's not necessarily that I hate you and want to kill you or smash you into the ground. As, hey, you know what? I, I disagree with you, but we're going to have our ideas compete. You know, we see nothing wrong with ideas competing, but that's really, to me, all that's there. So we don't have perfect information, so we don't know uh, literally what we want in a year from now or five years from now. So how can we have perfect information, let alone for 10 years from now or even six days from now? Or the, the fact that we don't, that we have these different opinions is where this just a difference in individualism, because we're different people. I mean, we we might have a lot of similarities. Obviously, I agree with that. But there, we're obviously different autonomous individuals, and because we have these different ideas, that is really just where, to me, 
competition comes from. It just happens to be that we might have the ideas compete. The the point for us voluntarists is that it has to be done voluntarily through the marketplace. So you, you see what I'm saying? Like to me, competition mm-hmm. is a natural part of humanity from just being a part of an, 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 a society of, of autonomous individuals with differing opinions and a lack of perfect information. Allow me to clarify for a moment what I mean. Um, first of all, in regards to reference to what we're talking about. The example that was given by the guy who was trying to explain tragedy of the commons in the video that I was referring to is that you have a bunch of people that are competing at that time as farmers um, who are utilizing the common-held pasture, but they're still all individually capitalists competing for having the healthiest cows to sell at the market. The motive is therefore different. You know, at that point, yeah, I want to be sure my cows eat most of the grass, and, you know, it's more important to me that I get it rather than that guy over there. That's what I'm trying to say is that the tragedy of the commons, as it has been expressed to me um, and generally comes up, deals with people who have very different values than what we suggest in the cooperative society proposed by the Venus Project. Okay, so in regards to competition in general, the reason that we value cooperation over competition, there are multiple layers to this. Um, if you do, there are a lot of studies that point out, for example, that cooperation is far more effective and efficient overall in producing the best results. Not just in, because at that point, for example, if you and I are in competition and you run into this, we're going to go back to that uh, example of, for example, how money and monetary, um, monetary, the monetary system can badly affect science. Because a lot of people go, well, well, science produced this and that. I'm like, yeah, well, don't forget the monetary incentive. Scientists in our current paradigm, for example, have to compete with each other over grants to even be able to eat. So it's not really in a scientist's best interest to share information with somebody else because he wants the grant for himself. They're in competition. Tesla versus, um, you know, his big rival, uh, Edison. Okay, those two people were in competition with one another. And so they did things to sabotage each other's work. Okay, that's an example of where competition actually holds mankind back. There are competitive situations, for example, that occasionally I prescribe to. Fresco is really against sports, for example, but my daughter does participate in soccer. Okay, and the reason why, and I try to emphasize with her, as you go into the competitive environment of soccer, you're trying to better yourself. What other people are doing is only partially relative. You're using other people as a measurement of your own improvement. Okay, That is, can be a healthy application for competition. Competition in a marketplace, particularly if we're competing over resources that are vital for our survival, is a breeding ground for violence. That's how you end up in situations like uh, competing for the petrodollar. The United States feels compelled to try to ensure that they have the access to the majority of the oil on the planet so that they can have the controlling instance in oil. Now, once again, we are talking about a statist example, I understand. And I'm bringing it up as an example of why people find incentives to be violent through competition. And I think that that could exist even outside of a statist environment. And we'll get into some of that in the anarcho-capitalist segment later. Um, so I feel, and Fresco feels, that Cooperation, particularly when it comes to things like creating what is necessary to survive, in the long run is a lot better. And there are examples of cooperatives that even function within the marketplace, which is another reason I say to people, watch the Left Libertarian videos first, even though those are not Zeitgeist videos, 
Because that's how I envision a resource-based economy first coming into fruition, with cooperatives, worker self-management to avoid tyranny, not just of the state, but also tyranny within you know, uh, an employment situation, um, working together to achieve the goal of building an infrastructure that allows us to move on to a resource-based economy. Okay. All right. Well, if, if a re, if a resource-based economy, uh, you know, claims not to need all uh, control over all resources, how do we know which resources will be needed? And if a resource that was once not needed, you know, by an R, uh, RBE is now needed, how will it legitimize its claim at that property? So, well, well, let me say that um, first of all, uh, okay, one of the examples that Fresco gives, and um, <laughs> uh, Bear with me here for a moment, because generally when you invoke anything that went on during World War II that involves Germany, people have certain emotional responses. But he pointed out, for example, that during World War II, because he was uh, he was actually in the, the Army Air Corps, like he was involved with helping to design airplanes during World War II, and therefore they knew about what the Germans were up to. Well, because of the trade embargoes in Germany, Germany did not have access to rubber. So they didn't go attack countries with rubber trees, which, mind you, not to say that Germans aren't capable of doing that during World War II. They just developed synthetic rubber. If you don't have a solution, in many cases, it is far more efficient for you to find use science and come up with a solution of your own um, through science. Design your own solution or your own workaround rather than trying to take something from somebody else. War and conflict are extremely wasteful of resources and energy, and obviously human life. Uh, I'm with you. So why can't the individuals just do that right now? You see what I'm saying? So like, if if it's if they can go in and just make something on their own, the RBE Society, and not have to take it from individuals, uh, any other property, why can't other individuals right now just do the same thing on their own? Well, actually, some people do that. Um, I don't know if you've ever researched the off-the-grid communities that are on the, you know, on our planet, but I have, you know, people. But then, and this is actually when I was talking to the Libertarian Party candidates uh, from 2008 for president, I made the quote unquote conversion, and they wanted to talk to me. Most of them were friends of mine, and I explained it to them like this. Okay, so a small resource-based economy is an off-the-grid home. It produces its own electricity through renewable, clean methods, which are already available. And the people involved in, the, in that household produce their own food and try to produce as much as possible. The funny thing is, off-the-grid living is the ultimate personification of personal responsibility. That's what Christine Smith, for example, said to me when I was explaining the resource-based economy with her. I'm like, why be dependent on trade? It's not about making trade illegal or telling you that you can't have it. Why be dependent on trade? In fact, you should try to seek the need trade as little as possible so that nobody has any power over you monetarily or state-wise. If I don't need to trade with you because I already have all my own food, that's freedom. Okay, so the goal in a resource-based economy is to make sure that everybody can do that, um, generally, even as individuals. And it means that well, every... Go ahead. Well, this kind of brings us to planned obsolescence, I think. Here, to me, I, I you know I've heard uh, people talking about planned obsolescence, and I've done some some of my own research, like on the light bulb and stuff like that. And when I when I think of planned obsolescence, the first thing that comes to my mind is if there's anybody out there, it's kind of like going back to the price taker, price setter argument. So, in other words, if you're in a truly open economy, 
the only reason we even have property rights in the first place from a libertarian perspective is because there's scarce resources, right? Now, what planned obsolescence says is that the market creates scarcity, in essence, right? So that there's certain firms that will try to do things to make it so, so that they, you have to you know, do cyclical consumption and, and the rest of this stuff. And my, my issue with plans, planned obsolescence is that in an open and free society uh, – Companies generally, they sure they set they, they they write a number on a price tag and they might put it in front of something, but if they market way over market value, nobody's going to buy it from them, right? They, they're they're more of price takers in an open economy. When you have hot dog vendors and right across the street, it's not the guy selling a hot dog for the same price. You can't charge twice as much for the hot dog, or people will just go across the street, right? So to me, planned obsolescence. When you have a, an open economy. The, and where people are not restricted from trying to compete and getting their own property and, and doing what they want with society, right? That is going to limit any type of form of planned obsolescence more than oligopolizing or monopolizing industries or production. You see where I'm going towards with this? Let so me, me d- go ahead. Um, when we talk about definitions, let me clarify a little bit on what the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project's perspective on planned obsolescence is, because it seems to me that you have a, a different understanding of it than I do. Um, to your audience and to mine, first of all, I would recommend that you watch the documentary that Stefan now claims he never watched, um, The Lightbulb Conspiracy, Pyramid of Waste, um, where it lays out in detail what the concept of plant obsolescence is and how it has been practiced throughout the ages. Stefan made a video a while ago where he said that plant obsolescence is like some kind of economic fallacy, like it could never happen because obviously people will buy better stuff. The problem is is that essentially what plan obsolescence is and the reason we think it's such a problem is it's the reason, for example, you have those piles of cell phones in China that I was talking about earlier. You make more money selling more products. If you make products that last longer within a certain degree, um, then you're selling less stuff. That's where the whole term, they don't make them like they used to, comes from. Is that, for example, in the automobile industry, they figure out, man, if, I, if these people only buy one car in their entire lives, we're... We're not going to make any money. We're going to sell cars to people in comparison. We could have people get new cars every five years, which is what they condition the market to accept right now. Okay. Now, mind you, to achieve a lot of that, people usually want to stay state, 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 state. I'm like, but that is entirely not really relevant. The, the light bulb cartel that is talked about, for example, in the, in the plan obsolescence movie I just talked about, was a group of individuals who happened to be wealthy working together. I can't say that they never used the state in any of the individual countries, but they didn't really have to. They all collectively agreed that they were just going to lower the lifespan of light bulbs collectively over time to, to condition the market to accept uh, shorter and shorter lifespan. And yes, yeah, I think that's, I think that's. I just want to say something real quick. I think this really is a pretty bad example of anarcho-capitalism, seeing as how these were licensed, state licensed and incorporated institutions that were given an oligopoly through an economy system of taxation and regulation and tariff protectionism and, and all the rest of this stuff, let alone trade, trade barriers. So you know, I, I think when I look at like today's society, it's it kind of like saying that today was free market or the year 1900 was free market or anything like that. It, it really seems a little you know silly to me because – it's completely wrapped around a state. You know, we are in the middle of a state, and and I I don't think people understand how much of an effect that really has on our on our individual choices and who we are as individuals. So I, yeah, that's just my my two cents. And I'm also, not, and, and let me ask one more one more last thing. Okay. The light bulb that they they used uh, in in the firehouse example 
uh, that light bulb burned at what, like five watts or something like that. It was very low, three watts or something like that. It's a very low bulb. No, no, I mean, that filament we can still use those today. We could make more of those bulbs right now, but nobody would really find a use for them when they could just buy for a dollar a halogen lamp or a mercury lamp or whatever they want to use. Uh, and, and they know that it's going to be ten times brighter, so they can actually read at night instead of having like candle lit dinner type stuff, you know. So I guess that's my my defense of that is that it was really I think there's more market or uh, state play in the market than uh, you know most people acknowledge, and the fact that you know maybe that wasn't exactly a great. Because in the Zeitgeist movement, you're going to be looking for the best materials and stuff. And that light bulb, obviously, was not the best materials and stuff, right? Well, let me point out that, um, because I've heard that same argument before, um, and I don't want to mislead anybody, but the light bulbs that we were talking about at the time that that light bulb that's still burning, that's been burning for almost 100 years, was designed, um, was the infancy of light bulbs in general. Most light bulbs were burning at that time. But there was a collective interest in selling more light bulbs overall. So rather than developing that technology into its next stages, which in theory could have also developed even brighter burning, more wattage, et cetera, et cetera, they took things in a different direction because they want to sell more light bulbs. You know, you, you run into the same thing you know, nowadays with, like, I, I watch my friends, they're enslaved to their iPods, and they have a new one, like, every year. You know, and they're designed in such a way that you can't just upgrade them. You, you know, you can't just pull out a chip and stick in a chip. They, they want you to get the whole new thing. Um, and I know that, you know, the technology, obviously, in some cases, you're going to have to do that. But you see it especially with personal computers. I had a personal computer with the, uh, you know, with a motherboard that's not compatible with anything beyond this type of RAM, blah, blah, blah. They're never designed to be upgraded. They're designed to make you go buy another one in a certain amount of time. And they condition you to accept that. They can do that absent the state. That's the other thing is that, and I'm not saying the state is great, but this is another big, you're not doing this, but I run into this false dichotomy all the time. Just because I think that, um, I don't think that the state is always a fault for everything doesn't mean I think the state is, is the solution. However, people consciously making decisions on what kind of products that they offer, once again, we can get into a lot of this in the other show, so I want you to have more time to focus on Zeitgeist. Plan obsolescence. As far as to we are concerned, let me get into the dangers, because we can talk about free market capitalism on the other show, every opportunity. Um, plan obsolescence, as far as we are concerned, is about making products that, that with the intent of selling them and getting the most profit out of them does not always mean, by any stretch of the imagination, the most efficient, the safest, uh, or even the longest lasting. And while, yes, you're correct, an informed consumer base will make decisions in theory, to get the best possible thing in the market, the truth of the matter is, is there's so many abstractions, like I said earlier, and different ways to deceive and confuse people. You know, that's the mob. This is the other thing that is a contradiction that I frequently run into because of the fact that I was a direct democracy advocate at one time who then was also involved with libertarianism. They're like, well, what about mob rule? You know, they say, well, we don't want the mob to be making decisions about what we do with our lives. Yet, for some reason, they do trust the mob to be the consumers, which are a very critical part of the free market ideology. They do trust them to be making responsible decisions for the good of all mankind in their consumption. Okay. Once again, I don't want to get too far into that because we're moving into the other conversation. I kept them separate for a reason. In the Zeitgeist Movement, we want to see all products developed to last as long as possible not just because of the fact that it's better for individuals, but it's better for the planet if we're not wasting a bunch of resources and a bunch of crap. 
no, fair enough. All right, so let's look at money for a second. Uh, you know, money as a medium of exchange, really, a means of exchange, really, is it enables buyers to compare the cost of goods without having knowledge of their underlying factors. So the consumer can simply focus on his personal cost benefit decision. So the price system is, is I guess you could say, therefore, said to promote economically efficient use of resources by agents who might not have explicit knowledge of all of the conditions of productions or supply. So this is called the signaling function of prices, as well as the ration, rationing function, which prevents overuse of any resource. So in, in, in other words, uh, the money, the monetary system usually has a tense, like I was saying earlier, for environmental concerns, not polluting on others, uh, not just chopping down a bunch of trees. You have to think about the future because the land value will decrease so much comparative to what the trees were chopped down. So when we look at money, too, we, we think about money as a, as a total aggregate throughout all of history and civilization, and we realize that it actually is more natural Money is more natural than even writing because money itself, like it's not the dollar bills. A lot of people just think of the, the fiat dollar, right? But money itself is actually gold because gold won out throughout history to where gold is, is the thing of trade. And the only reason we have trade, once again, is because there are scarce resources, okay? So now we, we go into the fact that even if you were to take away gold or fiat currency, people would just start using bread to trade or find whatever the next best medium of exchange is. So to me, I don't see us ever getting really rid of money. But let's say we have a zeitgeist society that just you know starts up tomorrow. Everybody you know wakes up to what you're saying here. And that uh, we start moving towards the zeitgeist society, we're still going to have scarcity. We can't just send everybody out into the, the space as we want tomorrow, right? Probably not even within a year. So there's, there's still going to be scarcity here. My, my question really has to do with the coordination problem. So the economic calculation problem is a criticism of using economic planning as a substitute for market-based allocations for the factors of production. And it describes the nature of the price system under capitalism and describes how individual subjective values are translated into objective information so that we can actually allocate resources in society. So how, how will you know what is valued without a real measure, measurable, timely, always up-to-date values? I mean, you can't read other people's minds, and there's a reason like no survey-based system has ever had mass success before because you know people might state things that are different than what they would actually do. So their actions are different than what they say. But let alone all the distortions, I mean, not just in the, in the short run, but also in the long run, how will a resource-based economy overcome the calculation problem without a reliable feedback mechanism for the factors of production, such as human actions uh, through the voluntary pricing system, let alone the fact that people won't be able to control you know, the resources around them once they're technically inside a zeitgeist? Um, well, I was wondering when we were going to get to the economic calculation problem, and hopefully I can cover everything in 15 minutes that we have. And if not, then we can also – I have zero problem. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I would love to give you an opportunity to ask as many questions as you like. So if you'd like yes, to do sir. another segment like this one, I have no problem doing it. I've been very I, happy. I would. I, I like this. Yes, sir. Uh, I like this. Go ahead. Okay. So um, first of all, let's talk about the price mechanism. Okay. Um I've done some research also because uh, I don't know if you listened to my debate with Stefan, but there were people who felt that I didn't answer this to their satisfaction, so I wanted to do more research. It didn't help that I had a 103-degree fever and a pounding sinus headache when I was talking about <laughs> But um, he repeated this over and over and over and over again, and, and you obviously did a much better job, I think, articulating it than he did. He just kind of took Mises and pounded me over the head with it over and over again as if that was going to be an argument. So... 
Um, you've analyzed it considerably better, and I think explained it better also for the audience. Um, the first thing that I would want to point out is that uh, one of the major criticisms of the price mechanism comes from other economists who are not necessarily left-leaning, that price mechanisms do not necessarily mean efficiency by any stretch of the imagination, and they certainly also don't mean that everybody gets resources. We keep getting in these, these comparisons, and that's the other thing that frequently comes up in discussions of um, zeitgeist. Like, Stefan, for example, needed a list like all these different Maoist and you know, different communists who kill thousands of people in their efforts of central planning. There's a lot of appeal to fear. Um, and I pointed out, that, you know, that um, the price mechanism, and, and there are other economists who agree about this, who obviously not zeitgeist-oriented, is also subject to all kinds of distortions. It's subject to um, all kinds of, like those things I was talking about earlier. I mean, the most extreme examples that come to mind are $1,000 handbags. I wish I was making that up. Uh, $1,000 shoes. Um, actually, one of the things that I contributed to Zeitgeist moving forward was the scene where you see the guy, you know, the guy standing there and there's these homeless people um, uh, sitting next to this Store where there's these people wearing all this fancy clothing. There's literally a store that's in this area where there's all these homeless people. They step over them and they go into these stores where there's these $1,000 handbags. And they step over homeless people on their way to buy these things. Um, the guy in the movie, uh, the one who plays kind of the main role for Peter Joseph in most of the Zeitgeist films, uh, his handle on the internet, his name is Tank Top, uh, pointed out to me that you know he had been to that street, for example, and had seen that. Um, but he also pointed out that there was an app at one time for the, uh, you know, for your iPhone called I'm Rich. It literally did nothing else but put a symbol behind it that said, you know, basically the words I'm Rich on your iPhone, and it cost $1,000. It literally was just social status. I can afford to blow $1,000 to own this stupid app that does nothing else to my iPhone, but say I'm rich. Um, those are the distortions of the price mechanism that I think also lead to pockets of poverty. And I think that people stepping over uh, homeless people to get to places where they can buy $1,000 handbags is a perfect example of that distortion in action. I do not feel that the price mechanism by any means is an effective way of ensuring that people have the access to the resources that they need to survive. And generally, and you haven't been like this, but I've had many anarcho-capitalists. I literally have a, a point on my Facebook page, which is what I call Honest Ancaps. Every now and then you can get them to admit this, that there are going to be people you know, who can't find a way to, to make a life for themselves within the market system, okay, um, and that are going to end up like those people on the side of the road. I think that we tend to associate death camps and gulags with a flaw in central planning alone, as if that doesn't already happen in capitalist societies. State, obviously, is involved. But I, I also feel that certain aspects of that, the fact that there's going to be some people who do well and some people that don't, market correction, when it happens, is, is not just a little thing that sort of happens on some papers. It affects real people, you know, and it can kill people. Um, and that's why I feel that the price mechanism itself is, is an element of that structural violence that we were talking about earlier. It can be in a situation where I raise the price of something and therefore can um, control and manipulate people. You couple that with the concept of inelastic demand. 
Inelastic demand is another economic concept that is established and understood by most economists, including Mises, I believe, even pointed this out. There are going to be some inelastic demands. There are things that I have to have in order to survive. And if you're the person who happens to own them, you have a considerable amount of leverage over other people. That's another form of tyranny. So overall, I think that the price mechanism is not uh, an effective means in of itself. That said, um, when it comes to the issue of the economic calculation problem, another thing that I've had to bring up to people, and you have already, for example, told me that you don't agree with everything that Mises says, but there are a lot of people who do, and particularly when they're talking about it. And this is one of the reasons why we're kind of branching at this point. I end up, I, there's nothing I can do. I have to talk about uh, free market theory because you're asking me about the economic calculation problem, which it comes from. Okay. First of all, one of the things that frequently comes up, and I have to remind people when we discuss this, because this is something else that I said to Stefan during my debate with him, and he just kind of let it bounce off like water off his back. But Austrian theory, all of Mises' work is based on his opinion. He admits that. It's not based on reviews of data. It's not based on you know trends. It's literally what he thinks will happen. There are sometimes examples to be given, but he literally says it's not falsifiable with the term. If statements and propositions are not derived from experience, they are not subject to verification and falsification on the ground of experience and facts. As in literally, it's just his opinion. So first we have to get into, is the economic calculation problem an empirical thing that must be solved? Or is it the opinion of one guy from the 1940s with the 1940s understanding of information technology um, and without any possibility of ever being able to conceive of how fast and vast the amount of information we can share is today? It's not the same world it was when Ludwig von Mises coined the Miesian calculation problem. Not the same world at all. Um, the levels of things that we can do with information technology right now, I might add, are also being utilized by the market to allow big blue chip corporations like Walmart, um, you know, et cetera, that are global to calculate what they're doing to produce products on demand, utilizing, um, you know, live, you know, basically live feed information and feedback. We are now to a stage where the technology involved is so superior to what it was when he was talking about it. And that's the funny thing, actually, I mean, I'll get into that separately, um, is that information technology is now to the point where we can share in real time what it is that people are consuming and then react appropriately. People already do that. There will occasionally be snags. You know, I usually have to give people the Jacques Fresco No Utopia video so that they understand that we're not saying that we think that at all times there will always be perfection, you know, in that. But even, you know, when you think about it, managers who run stores already kind of have to make decisions based on the trends that they envision from consumption from their stores. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. So um, that's the first step. I think that technology will definitely move us in a direction. Information technology, because that's one of the big things that Nietzsche says. There's no way they'll ever be able to get all the information they need in order to be able to make these, these decisions. Okay. The second aspect okay, that, that I would bring up um, is that Mises himself acknowledged that the economic calculation problem could be overcome 
with an abundance in the means of production. I'll read a little quote for you. Joan Robinson argued that in a non-growth economy, there would be an ineffective abundance of means of production, and so markets would not be needed. Von Mises acknowledged such a theoretical possibility in his original tract. The words of Mises, the static state can dispense with economic calculation, for here the same events in economic life are ever recurrent. And if we assume that the first disposition of the static socialist economy follows on the basis of the final state of the competitive economy, we might at all events conceive of a socialist production system, which is rationally controlled from an economic point of view. Some writers were out of Mises' words. Some writers have argued that the detailed use of a real unit accounting and demand surveys of planned economy could operate without a capital market in a situation of abundance. The purpose of the price mechanism is to allow individuals to recognize the opportunity cost of decision. In a state of abundance, there is no such cost, which is to say that in situations where one need not economize, economics need not apply. Uh, areas that are abundant, fresh air and water. So. You yeah. tackle the issue, because if you'll notice, there's a lot of stuff that we talk about, about achieving abundance, post-scarcity circumstances. That's why we produce a lot of what we need. Finally, I come back to the, the thing that I said earlier, um, which is that um, we're talking about a difference in society where, the like, you know, because one of the things they're talking about is a solid state economy is where Mises admits that you can overcome the calculation problem if you're, you know, if the demands that you're having are a bit more obvious. When you eliminate all of those artificial things that currently cause us to buy stuff or need stuff, you know, get rid of fashion, get rid of social stratification, all those things I mentioned earlier, it becomes far easier to essentially look at the landscape ahead of you and calculate what people need there are still going to be things that are not going to be covered, things that people want. If you create a society that, first of all, venerates and encourages the cultivation and the safe and effective use and efficient use of resources, the kinds of things that people want can be produced on your 3D printer if you didn't find them at the distribution center. You know, so I would say that yeah, is... Let me just, yeah, go ahead. That was it. Let me just add up, add up something on this because I know we have to close out the show here in a second. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of a, a reductio ad absurdum. I think we're taking this from two different perspectives. From when Mises made that quote, I think it's more of a reductio ad absurdum fallacy. And why I say that is because I think the point he was really trying to say is until we can just snap our fingers and have whatever we want appear, that's what real abundance would really mean. Like if I just want this ham sandwich right here on my table, boom, it's it's there. That's fine. But the only way we can get to that point is by you know utilizing uh, resource allocation through the economic calculation model of human action. So that we would have to we're going to outside of this full abundance and post scarcity world. The only way to get to something like that is to you know use resources what people see as being the best, which uses the economic calculation uh, of human action uh, through praxeology. So I think he was kind of just saying you know if even if we don't. Even if we have that society in a million years down the road where we, we do have ro robots that are going to be brought about, it's going to be brought about because we use the economic calculation to you know, try to eliminate any waste that would have delayed us from getting to an abundance world and that the abundance world itself might not be here. Uh, but the only way we can get to that is through using economic calculation and that we, can, we have to use economic calculation when we don't have abundance. So I think he was just kind of taking that reductio ad absurdum kind of to the extreme. 
I think that, um, well, I don't agree with your assessment from my own studies of it, but I think that he also probably never conceived of the production facilities that we have now or the ability to utilize resources that we have now that is superior to anything we had before. So um, I don't want to get into any, well, we, unfortunately we only have 90 seconds. We've spent two hours on this. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit off the air, but please do me a favor. Uh, tell the people on my show where they can find your stuff. Yes, yeah, certainly. VoluntaryVirtues.com or over at PeaceFreedomProsperity.com. Also, Michael Shanklin on Facebook. I'm real active over there. Uh, so that's the, probably the top places. And my YouTube channel, VoluntaryVirtues0.com is my username handle. Thank you so much, Neil. I truly appreciate the time, and I hope we can have a part two of this and close it out before we get into my segment. I'll talk to you right after the show. Sure, no problem. Thank you, everybody. If this is your first time tuning into V Radio, please check out my website, V-Radio.org. There you can find archives of more shows like this one. My must-see TV list of free documentaries to watch on the Internet that I think any activist should check out. And if you like what you heard, please consider a donation. Thank you again for tuning in to V-Radio.